Okay, when our faith falters, when our faith falters, Genesis 16, Abram, Sarai, and Hagar, what a story as we march through this Abraham narrative here in the life of the father of faith. What happens when the man of faith, the father of the faithful, falls off the rails? He and his wife. Do they wreck God's plan? Do they wreck God's plan in bringing blessing to the world? Um, the answer is no. <laughs> One of the most interesting encouraging and honest things about this chapter that Rachel just read, chapter 16, where we see Abraham falters big time and Sarai and really throw a wrench in the plan of God, but there is no plan B with God and God uses it and he brings beautiful things out of it, okay? Um, our faithfulness won't thwart his faithfulness, but there's, there's some serious jumping of the gun here and we can all relate, right? But one of the most interesting things about this chapter is that it follows chapter 15, which I preached last week. And in chapter 15, chapter 15 is like the consummate chapter about Abraham believing God. In the face of every, everything that should have caused him to doubt, his wife, not only were they way past childbearing age, but his wife was barren. His wife was barren. She'd never had a kid. And God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless every family of the earth through you. And I'm going to give you, make of you a great people. And Abraham believed God. He believed his word, not what he was saying. Next chapter, they try to help God. Um, and, this, and this happens. And that's really encouraging because if Abraham had perfect faith, that would not be encouraging to me. Because I don't have perfect faith. And yet God uses him. And his faith matters. And he, is, he believes God and God credits that to him as righteousness. And yet he falters, and we see that here, and that's actually really encouraging. God uses imperfect people with imperfect faith because the one that we look to is perfect and he's faithful, so he uses us. Hebrew scholar John Salehammer points out that the word affliction or misery uh, is the key word in this chapter. It's variously translated, but its root occurs, the same word, the same root word occurs in verses 6, 9, and 11. So verse 6, Sarai afflicted Hagar, and what, and what did Hagar do? She fled. It was so bad. She was so mistreated after having a, a, a child with Sarai's husband, and it, on Sarai's recommendation, by the way, that she ran, turns out, we'll get into this in a second, she, she ran out in the desert, but she was running home. She was Egyptian. They picked her up when they were in Egypt as a, as a helper, as a servant, and she was running back home. She was on her way back home. Uh, she fled into the wilderness. Uh, so Sarai afflicted Hagar, verse 6, verse 9, God um, to Hagar, the angel of the Lord to Hagar, who turns out the angel of the Lord is, seems well to be God himself. And we'll talk about that. But God says to Hagar, the angel of the Lord says to Hagar, Hagar, return to Sarai and submit to her. We'll talk about that briefly. That word submit comes from the root word affliction or misery. It's a hard thing, but God calls us in the midst of blessing us, he calls us to submit, to repent, to submit to his word, and she does that. And then verse 11, the Lord listened to Hagar in her affliction. That's the same word, and what that's doing is that's saying, the, that's the author, that's Moses telling us, that's the narrator telling us this is a theme in this chapter, that God brings through the misery that we create and through that we're brought into through our mistreatment sometimes, through, sometimes through mistreating others, he brings about beautiful things, and his plan will not be thwarted, okay? Um, so you might be in a place this morning where you're just in the middle of affliction, and this is a word for you, God, because God is, God is faithful. 
Um, he's with you. He sees you. He hears you. He, he is the God who runs after you. So three points this morning. No surprise there. Uh, losing hope, helping God, and the God who finds us. Losing hope, helping God, and the God who finds us. So let's jump in to losing hope. Abram journeyed from Haran. Uh, when God called him uh, out of Ur, he stopped midway in Haran. He journeyed from Haran west uh, to Canaan when he was 75. So Haran was sort of halfway up around the, the Fertile Crescent. And when he was 75 years old, he began his journey. He picked up from Haran and began moving to Canaan where God called him. So that was at 75. This is 10 years on. He's 85. He's 85 years old. 10 years have passed. John Curd, a Hebrew commentator, writes, the promise of God must have seemed absolutely impossible at this point. Absolutely impossible. It's been 10 years. And everything that God has said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you through, has not happened. So what am I going to do? I'm probably going to try to help God out. I don't know about you. What do we do when it seems impossible God's going to fulfill his promises? How do we behave? Do we patiently wait for God or try to take matters into our own hands? Kurt again, Sarai clearly regards the promise of God as folly. It will not happen. In fact, she insists that it is God himself. Well, look at that language. It is God himself who is restraining her from having children. Now, actually, technically, she's right. He's doing it for blessing. He's doing it for greater glory and for a greater story. But she's blaming God. She's mad at God. How can God make such a promise and then prevent it from happening? Let's look at Sarai's control, and then let's look at Abram's passivity briefly under these points. Sarai's control. Sarai, verse 1, Sarai had borne him no children. So you notice how that's phrased? Every word's intentional. Moses is a master. Rather than, he could have said, she had not had any children. But it says, Sarai had borne him no children. See that? It's, it's like, man, she, the promise has been given to Abram. God's going to change the world through you. But Sarai, can you, you can feel what she must be feeling, the disappointment, even the shame in that culture of not having any kids. And the kid is going to be the vehicle of blessing to the entire, not just to this, not just to his family. It's the whole reason they moved. It's the whole reason they uprooted everything. All, our, all the hopes of the world hang on her having a kid. And yet Sarai had borne him no children. Um, it's setting up the shame and the frustration she must be feeling. They uprooted everything, and yet she hasn't given him any kids. This gives rise to her suggestion that he try to have kids with Hagar. That was not a fun idea for her to suggest to her husband, hey, why don't you, uh, why don't you have kids with Hagar, this younger woman? Maybe, maybe, that'll, maybe that's the way God's going to fulfill his promise. What a sacrifice it must have been. How humiliating. She's doing everything she can to help. Um, one commentary, this is Gordon Winham. He says, it was a serious matter for a man to be childless in the ancient world. A little bit of context here. Uh, for it left him without an heir. But it was even more calamitous for a woman. To have a great brood of children was the mark of success as a wife. To have none was ignominious failure. So throughout the ancient East, polygamy was resorted to as a means of obviating, you know, doing away with childlessness. But wealthier wives preferred the practice of surrogate motherhood. Another commentary says, only now in the Abraham narrative is, is mention made of Sarai's Egyptian servant girl, Hagar. She, she, we've never heard of her before. She, she pops up all of a sudden. There were ways in which a childless couple could acceptably meet their need of a child. One was by adoption. And Abraham had evidently adopted Eliezer. We learned that last chapter. 
Another mentioned in the laws of Hammurabi was for the wife to present one of her slave girls to her husband to bear a son for the marriage. And the, and the child would have been Sarai, not Hagar. But do you see verse 2? See, we've already begun to feel her humiliation, her sadness. She's trying to help. But she says in verse 2, since the Lord has prevented me. Do you hear the anger, the resentment, and pain underneath this statement to Abram? Not since I haven't had any children. He could have said that. He didn't say that. So that's, um, that's losing hope. Let's look at point two, helping God. So what does Sarai do? She develops an alternative plan. Now we really start to see echoes of Eden here, echoes of the Garden of Eden. Uh, in Eden, the serpent says, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Basically, he's saying God's holding out on else. Take he doesn't want what's best for you. His word needs to be disregarded. Try something else. Take control. Take it and give it to your husband. We see echoes of this playing out here, and it's intentional. Um, now, let's talk about Abram's passivity as we continue in, this, in these verses, these early verses. If you look at the end of verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of his wife. She says, why not, why not try Sarah? Why not try Hagar? Okay, maybe that's how God's going to give us a son that's going to bless every family of the earth. Um, and Abram listened to the voice of his wife. The only other place this occurs in the entire Bible is Genesis 3.17. And to Adam he said, this is Genesis 3, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Okay, because you're, you've listened to the voice of your wife and what follows is curse. Curse, right? Um, so in our text, listen to this, Sarai, Abram's wife, Abram's wife, there's one word, took Hagar and gave uh, her to her, hus her husband. Genesis 3, 7, listen to the same words. Uh, the woman took some of its fruit and ate and gave some of it to her husband. Okay, the, the, the sum of the same words is in both texts, Genesis 3 and 16. Woman took, gave, husband. And that really, those four words summarize the action, right? The action in both accounts. Gordon Winham again says this. He says, this leads to the conclusion, by employing quite similar formulations and an identical sequence of events in Genesis 3, 6 and 16, 3 through 4, the author makes it clear that for him, both narratives describe comparable events, that they're both accounts of the fall, of a fall, right? So one of the things that Moses is telling us here is this isn't just a bad decision. This is, our sin is a result of a fallen condition. Okay, we, we're not, we aren't just people who sin. We are born into sin. We are sinners. We are opposed to God. We are fallen. And we need to be born a second time. The first time wasn't good enough because born naturally through our parents, we are inheritors of a sin nature. It is a fundamental core problem. And the only way, because it's so fundamental, that we can be saved and renewed is through a complete renewal. Uh, we need to be born a second time by being born through a second Adam, not the first Adam, okay? Um, and that's one of the things that Moses is, is showing us here in this text. This is more fundamental than just simply uh, Sarai trying to take control. This goes all the way back to the garden. She's doing what Eve did, and Abram is being passive just like Adam was. And so today, again, I think a lot of times women will struggle, especially in marriages, with control, and we men will struggle with just being passive, and not leading. And, and the biggest way that we can lead, the best way that we can lead is to stand up and to say, this is God's word. 
this is God's promise. This is what we're going to do for the protection and the blessing of our family and of the entire of the entire world, right? But we don't do that in our sin. We sit back and say, okay, yes, ma'am, you know, whatever. And I'm not putting this on women. This is, ultimately, this is both parties, but this is at Adam's doorstep, right? This is it. Lauren said, on you, and that's right. That's right. Amen. Preach. Callbacks on you guys. Yeah. Amen. Not amen. I'm sadly, but it's true. Um, Garrett Kidner, he says, he says, for all this, Abram had slipped from faith to be guided by reason and the voice of Sarai, not of the Lord. Um, the New Testament likens Hagar's son born after the flesh to the product of self-effort in religion, ever incompatible with those of the spirit. So how do we do this? How do we try to help God? Um, like Peter did, right, when he rebuked Jesus for wanting to go to the cross. Jesus said, look, here's the plan. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be betrayed. This is how I'm going to save the world. This is how I'm going to conquer. This is how I'm going to be the king. I'm going to be, be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes and all the intelligentsia, and I'm going to be nailed to a cross. And Peter says, well, well and, and of course, he doesn't stop there, right? Um, three days later, I will rise. But I think by, by that time, Peter had just completely blanked out and probably didn't even hear that part. And he steps in and he says, no, no, terrible idea. That's not how we conquer, Lord. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan, right? I mean, you think he's thinking about, he's probably seeing all the way back to the garden and going, man, this is the same thing playing out. This has to be, that's why I'm going to the cross to bury, to bury the old humanity, to crucify it. You can't, you can't make it better. It's like putting lipstick on a, on a cadaver. It has to be killed, and Jesus is going to kill it. And we have to, we have to be renewed in his humanity through his resurrection, right? Um, so Sarai in verse 5 says to Abram, uh, violence, Hamas in the Hebrew, violence to me on you. So she, she says, here's a good idea. Abram says, okay, and he, and he, and he goes into Hagar and they produce, and she gets, she's pregnant. And, um, once she gets pregnant, she, what happens to the way that she starts treating Sarai? Yeah, she starts scorning her. She starts treating her with contempt, and Sarai doesn't like that one bit. It doesn't work out, right? And she says to Abram, she turns on him and says, violence you've done. The violence to me needs to be on you. Um, okay, this is a bad idea. The, the, the consequences are disastrous. That's the subtext here. Um, let me just step to the side briefly and as, a, as, a, as a brief aside and say that Robert Alter is, is a scholar. I mentioned him last week who says uh, really helpfully that polygamy is never actually outright and explicitly um, uh, uh, condemned in the Old Testament. But every time we see it, this kind of thing happens. It's a disaster. It's one of the ways that the Hebrew Bible, very in a very sophisticated, really powerful story form through history, shows us polygamy is not God's intention. God didn't give Adam multiple wives. The original marriage that we're to imitate is one man and one woman. And every time we see polygamy in the Bible, it creates big, big time problems. But God will bring blessing, bring blessing through this as he brings blessing through the mess that becomes Jacob's family, which is, has a lot of resonance here. Uh, and he brings blessing through David. He always, he, if he's going to bless us, he must bless us in the midst of our stumbling and sin and faltering and faithlessness, right? And he does that indeed. But that's just aside, an aside to say this is an instance where we see um, basically Abram has two wives and veer from God's plan. And God chooses because he's good to bring blessing through it. He isn't blessing their decision, though. And it's an absolute disaster. 
It's an absolute disaster. Um, so Abram says, do as you wish. This is another instance of his passivity, the sin of Adam. Alan Ross says, Abram is remarkably passive with two women, basically two wives, much like Jacob in two gen- is two generations later with Rachel and Leah. Do you think these are related? Absolutely. The sins of the father passed down to the son. Um, Derek Kidner, on, speaking on verses four through six, he says, he just sums it up. He says, each of the three characters displays the untruth that is part of sin. In false pride, um, uh, in false pride, in false blame, and in false neutrality, right? So the false pride of Hagar in verse four, the false blame of Sarai in, in verse five, and then in verse six, the false neutrality of Abram. But he says, Sarai's mask soon slipped in verse six to show the hatred behind talk of justice. Um, now, another aside, before we move to the last point, point three, the God who finds us, Alan Ross just has some excellent counsel in his commentary on how to read Hebrew narrative. Um, he's, he makes this, this simple but profound point. As we, as we step through this Abraham narrative together, as you read the Old Testament, he reminds us the story, the story is not the message from God. Um, um, the story, as it is, is not just in, in its bare bones. Okay, that the story, the action isn't is that alone isn't the whole message from God. It's the setting. It's the setting wherein God works, and all of God's word, all of the Bible is God's word. But He says, pay attention to the dialogue. In other words, what I'm saying here, let me translate that, is that because these things are happening by a father of faith, doesn't mean that God's endorsing them. Okay, He's showing us the tangle and the mess of carnality, of sin, of us trying to help God and deviate from his promise instead of trusting in him, all the things that we resonate with in our lives, right? He isn't rubber stamping or endorsing these things and saying, yeah, this is God saying, do act this way, live this way. This is the setting, but pay attention to the dialogue, especially the speeches of the Lord. The story is not the message. The word from the Lord is the message, and it often comes near the end of the story, and it often comes in the dialogue. An example would be in the Joseph narrative, which is the end of Genesis, right? Those amazing, that amazing story that takes up 14 chapters, Genesis 37 all the way through 50, and it's this tangle. It's every bit is crazy and tangled and messy and more is our lives. We can identify, and it seems like an absolute disaster, and then you start to see God work through it, and it's amazing conclusion, and at the very end, Joseph kind of wraps it up, and he says, in chapter 50 of Genesis, he says to the brothers, okay, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And for the saving of many lives, God used all this to bring about salvation. To say, and that's that is that is the moral of the story. And so we see here in God, especially coming to Hagar, going after her, and actually receiving a name from her, and and giving her instructions. He, this, this we begin to see uh, the message of the of the text come out here um, in the God who finds us. Point three. So let's jump into that. Um, so point three, the God who finds us. So Sarai treats Hagar harshly. Hagar flees. Like I said, she's headed on the road to Shur, um, which is back to Egypt. She's going home. She's going home. There's nothing left for her there. So she thinks. Um, Okay, the next thing that happens after she flees, the very first word, the first action is that the angel of the Lord found her. And literally in the Hebrew, it says found her, the angel of the Lord. It's the first, it's the first verb. Um, found her is the first word in the verse. She flees, God finds her. 
the angel of the Lord goes after her, pursues her to speak to her and to save her, to enter into this mess um, that we have created of our lives, that they've created, right? Um, okay. And, you know, it reminds me of when God finds our first parents in the Garden of Eden, after they've plunged themselves into misery and they've begun to hide from themselves and from each other and even from the Lord, and sin has entered in and, and brought death, and it's spreading out through all creation. Um, so he finds them. He goes in search of them, and he finds them in the garden. He says, where are you? And this is a wilderness that their sin and our sin have made of the world. It's not a garden anymore. That was the first married couple. This is a, a servant, a slave girl, who's been uh, used by a godly man and his wife to whom God has given a great promise. She's been used and abused and mistreated and run off. And so in so many ways, the narrator is saying, do you see what sin has done to relationships, to all of creation? It's turned a garden into a desert, and it's made, it's just made an absolute hash of things. We need a God who runs after us in our sin and our pain and our misery. We need a God who sees us and who cares. And that's exactly what we see here. This is the first appearance of the angel of God in the Bible. The first time he appears, he condescends to a slave girl in the, in the howling waste. And Hagar soon realizes this is God himself. Verse 13, she says, I have seen the one who sees me. God takes pity on those who are used and abused. There's nothing else in ancient uh, Near Eastern literature like this. Um, history is written by the great people, the victors, the generals, and they always paint their, even their losses as far as, so far as I've read with, with these strokes of genius. But here we have this one woman who's an Egyptian uh, slave who's been mistreated out by herself in the wilds, and God goes to her. And it's the first appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Bible. He has a special heart for those that are in pain and that are in misery. Um, so Sarai sends her away through her mistreatment of her. God sees this, and he sees her. He sees Abram's sin. He sees Sarai's sin, he sees her situation, he sees Hagar's situation, and he arranges things through Hagar's submission to his word. Remember that word means, submit to her means, it's the same root as affliction or misery. It's hard to submit, it's hard to go home and say, I'm back, I will submit to what you, you've mistreated me, I'll submit to what you say. But there's blessing in submitting to God's word and repenting and turning around, literally Hagar turns around. Not that she's done anything wrong, but we see a lot of what God calls us to in her response here. It's a hard thing for her to submit, but she does it. And she finds blessing there. What, what happens? She ends up being able to keep her son, Ishmael. Originally, it was going to be Sarai's. It doesn't, it, Ishmael is counted as, as Hagar's son. She gets to keep her son, and God says, I will, I will bring many. You will become, this, this son will become a great people. He'll be a wild ass of a man, right? The Bedouin tribes, just, you know, wild and over against your um, your other brothers, and it, but you'll become a great people. And so God brings blessing to it. God sees us in our pain, our affliction, our misery, and he cares. He always sees us, guys, but sometimes it takes pain for us and misery and affliction for us to see him. And she sees him. Pain has a way of opening our eyes and ears. To, again, to use C.S. Lewis's amazing line from Problem of Pain, God, pain is God's megaphone to rouse us from slumber. Um, what does this mean that she has seen God? The phrase is almost identical. Most scholars note this. 
The phrase that she has seen God is almost identical to Exodus 33, 22, where God says to Moses, um, you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. And he's saying this to a slave girl, an Egyptian slave girl in the desert heading home after being mistreated by her master and his wife. Um, so here from the language we can tell as she names this well, um, and she calls on the name of the Lord, she calls on his covenant name. What she's doing here is she's worshiping. She's worshiping the Lord. She's become a convert. She's become a worshiper of the true God through this pain. Uh, Bruce Waltke, another commentator, points out that this is the only time in the Bible, okay? This is the only time in the Bible that someone gives a name to God. God gives tons of names to people, but this is the only time in the Bible that God that, that someone else gives a name to God, and Hagar does that here. Um, Most scholars, most conservative scholars believe, again, this is the first time that the angel of the Lord appears. She gives God a name. He blesses her. He meets her. He sees her. He meets her in her pain and affliction and turns it into something beautiful. Um, most scholars agree this is a pre-incarnate Christ, that this is the second person of the Trinity, the only mediator between God and man. The way that God can meet us in our sin and misery right, is, is, is Jesus Christ. It reminds me of Jesus in John 4 with the Samaritan woman who also doesn't have high status at all. She's had five husbands, and the man that she's with now is not her husband, and Jesus says that to her. It's a hard word, but it sort of helps her see. She's kind of sassing Jesus to that point as he says, that's right, the, the man that you're with now isn't your husband, and you've had five. And she, it kind of gets her attention. He's not shaming her. He's not, he's not putting his finger in her wound. But he's showing her that he cares about her and that he has a word of healing for her and that he is that word of healing, right? And, and she's the first person. She's rejected by society. She doesn't feel esteemed. He, his disciples have gone out to get something to eat. They've gone to get a sandwich, you know, at Crick's. Um, um, and, and he says... This is the most important thing to me. I've actually come through Samaria instead of going around it like most Jews, Jews did because I have an appointment with you. And he's the f she's the first person that he reveals himself to as Messiah. Um, this is the same God that we see here in the desert with, with Hagar. Um, oh, by the way, that was also by a well in John 4 with the Samaritan woman. And here we have this encounter uh, by a well. And, and Jesus says to her, I've got water that if you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty again. He's talking, of course, about himself. Um, and it's, again, it's an exacting word. It's an exacting word. Derek Kidner calls it God's exacting goodness. He tells, God tells Hagar, the angel of the Lord tells Hagar, return to your mistress and submit to her, though she abused you, right? It's a hard word, but it's a good word. Um, a commentator says, it was, hard, it was a hard thing to go back to face her problems and to eat humble pie. It involved turning the basic move in repentance and the first stage in finding God's way. The Lord delights to show mercy and give relief to the oppressed, but he also confronts them with their responsibility. She returns, of course, to, uh, to, to give birth to a son, Ishmael. And Ishmael means God hears. So this is the God who runs after us in our sin and misery, who sees us. He's the God who hears us and that in Christ. Um, 
You know, God in the garden, God here, God throughout scripture, God throughout history, he comes to us. He, when we sin and turn away from him and we're embroiled in our sin, other people's sin, um, when we're afflicted and miserable, um, both because of our own sin and because of the brokenness of the world, um, God comes after us and he finds us and he, bring, and he brings us to himself. How can that, how can that happen? It can happen because God, as, as the second person of the Trinity, in the fullness of time, um, passed, through, passed through the heavens and left all the privileges of heaven while remaining God, right, was rejected by us, on the cross was truly lost. He's able to find us and to meet us in our sin and to redeem us and to bring us into the arms of the Father because he, on the cross, he was truly, he didn't just feel abandoned by the Father. He was truly abandoned by the Father. He who did not deserve it so that we who don't deserve to be brought in by the Father can be. Um, so, that, so that we could be found and brought home. But we must, let's bring this word in again that, that is involved in this narrative. We must, like Hagar, submit to a hard word. And can I just say, the cross is a hard word. Sometimes we don't think about it as that. But the cross is a hard word, and here's why it's a hard word. It's the only word that leads us to life. But the cross, it doesn't just tell us the great love of God for us and what he endured. He endured the very, he became our sin. He endured the wrath of God for us. It also tells us this is how much of a problem our sin is to God. It took Jesus Christ hanging on a cross and enduring God's wrath for us and placating the wrath of God in our place. This is how ugly our sin is. This is the, the problem that we've created. This is our evil. This is our behavior, and Christ took it. And so um, there's a sense in which, in, in that way and in so many others, the, the cross is an offense it's an offense to our flesh. It says there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can do to be reconciled to God. He's done everything. Simply come to him. He has paid the price. Um, and so he comes and he came. Just as he came to Hagar, he comes to us. Um, let me just close by, by reading this. Uh, we, we see, let me say this and then read this and, and then close this out. Um, we see in the, in the longer march of, of Genesis and beyond, we see that actually this solution that Sarai and Abram, that Sarai contrived and Abram submitted to um, passively, um, it produced a child. God blessed that child and, and made him a great people just as he promised. But this child and his progeny would not be the way, of, it wouldn't be the child of promise. Why? Because it came through human effort. It came through human effort, through human work. The child of God had to be something that was simply by the work of God alone. And we're going to see as we march along in this narrative, and that's what Paul was speaking of in Galatians 4 that Rachel read from earlier. The child that, uh, the child of promise through whom God's going to bless the world has to come through no human effort at all. Abram is old enough to be dead. So is Sarai. She's been barren all her life. And through them, as we'll see, God will give this child that is 100% through his word and his promise and his work. And, of course, that is a pointer to Jesus, who is the one that comes as the very word and promise of God that comes to us and through no good of our own, he saves us completely through his work, right? 
Um, and so really, that is what we will see as the narrative continues, and it takes us to Jesus Christ. It takes us to Christ. Um, and so Jew, Arabs, American, Chinese, it doesn't matter what ethnicity, there is one way of salvation through the word and the promise of God, and that is Jesus Christ. Right? It's not through our own efforts. It's not through our own cleaning up of ourselves. It's not through ablutions, through washing, through keeping law. It's through the promise of God, through Jesus, who comes to us in our sin and misery and takes them upon himself and brings us to God. Um, last thing, let me just read this. Chapter 16, we're looking ahead here as we march on. Chapter 16 through 22 marks significant developments in the characters of Abraham and Sarah. The first scenes depict Abraham's tentative faith. His hope and belief are troubled by questions, doubt, human scheming, we just saw that, and passivity towards conflicts in his home, right? That's the Abraham we've seen so far. And we talked about this last week a bit, how actually this is a narrative, it's not just a story, it's history, and it's showing us a man and a woman who change through encounters with God over the course of their lives, okay? So check this out. Out of the struggles emerges a righteous man. This is what we're going to start to see as we move on. A righteous man of faith who models hospitality, speaks boldly for justice before God, and then with incredible faith, unquestioningly faces God's greatest demand. That's the chapter we'll finish with, Genesis 22, where he offers up his son Isaac through obedience to God. Sarah's faith and strength also increase. Her early responses to the delayed promises are scheming, anger, and incredulity. However, by the end of the act, she is faith-filled, decisive woman whose counsel is validated by God. So there's hope for us. There's real progress in the Christian life as we walk with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I just want to say as I close that, again, if you are in the middle of something that you just want, want to help God to fix, resist the urge, trust in him, trust in his word, trust in his spirit, look to him. He can do it. He, he does not need our help at all when it comes to salvation. It is, it is in toto, completely and fully given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and God, is, he will meet you right where you are in the middle of your sin, your misery, your affliction. He loves to do that. That's, that's where he comes. That's where he comes to, to be with his people um, and to redeem us. And so he's with us here. He's not a God who kind of hovers up here. He has come down. He's, he's come down into the midst of, um, of our mess, the mess that we've made of, of, our, of our lives and everything else. And, and he is pleased to dwell with us and to take us to himself. So um, let me close now. Lord, thank you so much for uh, this word, this chapter that is a history of the life of Abram and, and, Sar and Sarai and, and Hagar and some really poor decisions that were made uh, out of feelings of, of shame and, and, and desire to control and passivity. And there was abuse, and yet there was submission, there was return, there was you meeting them in the midst of this and bringing blessing to it, and that takes us to Jesus. We thank you that it's only because of Jesus that any of this was true and can be true, and it can be true in our lives too. Thank you for making beautiful things out of ashes. Lord, thank you that you don't require or need or want any of our help when it comes to salvation. You finished the work. You completed it. Help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in you today, maybe for the first time. Um, I just pray that you would fill us as we continue to worship you, and that just as you walked with Abram uh, and Hagar and Sarai, that you would walk with us, that you would make us faithful, and that you would continue to show us how faithful you are, even when we're unfaithful. Encourage us, Lord. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.